Hello, and welcome to the Player to Prospect podcast. The following episode features a conversation with Chuck Ristano, a pitching coach at Florida State University. To support the podcast, all follows, ratings, and reviews are appreciated. And now I present to you Chuck Ristano. That was going to be actually the first question I wanted to ask you is sure. how you're how you're liking it so far because you've spent 12 seasons at Notre Dame right and then now you're yeah you're yeah, at Florida State big change I mean I you know I don't know if you remember I took the visit I you know yeah I took a visit there and I was I like do. this is not a you know this is a different from what I'm used to but I just wanted to ask about you know how uh how your transition to that is going it's been great um the level of excitement I have for what I think we'll do and the vision and the plan is, is, is really strong. Um, working with Link and having an entire staff that we kind of brought down here together, I think that took away a lot of what would have been part of like the normal adjustment period. Mm -hmm. um, so the X's and O's of the baseball, it's nice to have a constant in a world that's like spinning with change. I find myself at like the intersection of excitement, like being thankful to work at a place that's synonymous with like college baseball royalty. Mm. But at the same time, like, yes, Notre Dame is a place I love dearly and will always love. And yes, I miss parts of it, of course, but that's not in the way of how excited I am for what we're going to do down here. Yeah. And how important is it too? I mean, you kind of highlighted it to come in with a coaching staff that you're already familiar with. I mean, has that just been like a seamless sort of like transition? Are you guys kind of implementing uh, the similar day-to-day -day processes that you did at Notre Dame? Yeah, I think the structure is by and large the same. Link okay. has a really good system and formula and vision, both for how we handle our day-to-day -day operations, but also how we handle recruiting, targeting, and evaluating players. Mm. So, like I said, kind of in a sea of change to come in with a group of guys that you know you work really well with mm -hmm. and also sprinkled in with some people here at Florida State who have done it for a long time here who have helped us kind of navigate mm -hmm. some of the new pieces that we maybe sometimes like didn't see coming. We have a mm -hmm. couple of people who have stayed on that have been invaluable to our transition. Yeah. And well, so you guys are all together and that's great. And even, you know, adding some new pieces, it's pretty easy on, you know, the work side or the, I guess I want to say the coaching side, but you guys are all coming into a brand new group of players too. So how do you guys kind of like bring them in and um, I guess kind of show them the culture that you guys built at Notre Dame and then sort of have them transition into your guys um, sort of philosophy because obviously it was different with other coaches well I think something that makes Link so special at what he does is he's so laser focused at just getting the job done what is the mm. practice structure organization what level of fundamentals do we need to improve on and I know that sounds like kind of cliche but we meet and we talk and we instruct daily Mm -hmm. But more than anything, his voice is the one you'll hear most frequently on the field. Mm -hmm. And he gets very active. I mean, I kind of find myself on on pitcher island sometimes, you know, mm -hmm. but we're always doing team components, whether it's PFPs, team defense. So we didn't really have to talk about like, hey, our vision is to alter change or rebuild a culture. 
Mm. We just try and let that happen for how we do day to day. Um, people ask me a lot about how things kind of changed at Notre Dame in such a short period of time. Mm -hmm. And Link, I think a lot of people, and I don't know that this was intentional or not, but a lot of people, I think, think you've got to rebuild in the locker room before you rebuild on the field. And mm -hmm. I think we made the conscious effort to be very detail-oriented, very intense, and focused on the field. And the small adjustments, the standard that we held the guys to on the field permeated through the locker room. And mm -hmm. I think it, we've kind of, we kind of shaped the culture from the field inward rather than the locker room out. I don't know if that's the right thing to do. That's what worked for us at Notre Dame. And I think mm. we're kind of in the process of beginning that here. Yeah. And uh, like I said, coming in with new players, I think something that a lot of players will look at first and start to question first and players these days will question things. Yeah. You know, I'm aware. Than, yeah. yes, they'll question the things that you guys are doing on the field. They'll say, why are we doing this? What's the point of this? I mean, not in a bad way. It's just, they want to know why that's what I'm finding a lot with other coaches uh, perspectives too. So I guess it makes sense because they work hand in hand on the field, off the field sort of culture. It's like, if they can understand why things are happening on the field, you know, it kind of takes care of itself off the field as well. Cause there's like that trust built into why yep. do you guys focus on that too? Like the making sure they understand why you guys are doing something. Well, I think the fundamental piece and playing elite fundamental defense, having a strong approach at the plate, executing pitches, my hope is that the need to explain why that's important, we're kind of past that. But I do mm. think particularly in the pitching world where there's information everywhere and yeah. the idea of how we develop each guy both individually, but also how we develop the group collectively, like that becomes on us to be prepared to answer the question. We have a group of guys who I will follow you no matter what you say, because they trust your expertise and they trust the relationship we're building. And then mm -hmm. like everybody, you have a group of guys that, that want to know why this adjustment will help them. And I think mm -hmm. as a coach, you've got to be prepared to confront and explain that every day. I think early on when data metrics spin, things like that, when it's, when it was in its infancy and we were all trying to understand what's the best way to implement this, mm -hmm. it could be a little intimidating for a coach and maybe a little bit of blow to the ego for a coach mm. to hear like, hey, coach, I don't know why we're doing this. But I think it challenges you to be a better coach and be more comprehensive in what you're doing. And I kind of enjoy that part of it. Mm. it it's, it's a challenge. You want to stay current. Had we had a pitching discussion five years ago, there might be different things. I, would, I probably was telling you different things on your recruiting visit at Notre Dame then I might tell you right now. And I think that's ultimately our job to yeah. adapt and stay current, but at the same time, evaluate mm -hmm. what's a fad and what's actually a lasting piece of the player development program that works for us. Yeah. I want to dive into the pitching side a little bit, because that is obviously your specialty. And you mentioned evaluating players too, because you can use data. Like you said, all these new toys uh, when yeah. it comes to, when it comes to like, developing players you can look at it kind of like a like a results-based sort of um approach or you can go sort of process oriented and you can go based off like maybe deeper metrics and say like this will project to do well do you have a, a personal approach to that um do you like to do a little bit of everything um what's been your experience with that i guess 
is what I'm asking. I do get intoxicated by the numbers. Wow, this guy's got an induced vertical break out the roof. Um, you know, the velocity, the spin rate. But I think all of that stuff you have to keep in perspective is a means to get results. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I do think a pitcher in high school and junior college um, that is void of having any tangible success is a tough thing to target because uh, I like guys who know what it feels like to win or mm. dominate innings. Um, just be, quote unquote, like the guy. Mm -hmm. And I think the metrics and the data and the video are all a means of you getting to be the guy. I think that I like to see like, Hey, quite honestly, what do his stats look like? Perfect game publishes their stats for all their tournaments. I think mm -hmm. that's a valuable piece. Mm -hmm. We look at high school stats quite a bit, not to say that you can't take the ugly duckling and turn them into the swan, but I don't think you can build a recruiting class around those guys. Now, mm -hmm. once so I think the result piece with a sprinkle of the metrics, the how the body moves, mm -hmm. um, the level of general athleticism. I mean, I, I, I tell our guys a lot, like the, the PO label is one of the most dangerous things you can get as a <laughs> 13, 14, 15-year-old. I, I want guys who are competitors, like go play mm -hmm. a position, go hit, go play safety on your football team. Show me that you have the capability of doing athletic things more than just repeating the pitching delivery. Hmm. So I think the central focus is like, well, are you good at job function? And if the answer to that is yes, what is making you good at that job function? Because sometimes it's just like a, an inferior level of competition. Yeah. And if that's the case, well, then you've got to start to look deeper into what makes what makes the kid get these results but if you're sure. having good results and we can point to how your arm works how the body works what kind of induced vertical break horizontal break do you have a vertical approach angle that is an outlier mm -hmm. i do enjoy like the and if you look at our notre dame pitching staff particularly from a year ago it was partially by design and partially good fortune but we put together a team of guys who looked very different every time they took the ball. We didn't have any like real sidewinders, mm -hmm. but we had, you know, over the top righties who threw curveballs. We had three quarter righties who threw sliders. We had every arm angle from a lefty. And I think our ability to mix and match was a piece of it collectively that helped us get where we were, but it mm -hmm. also allowed us to individualize development plans because the guy that had the big 12, six curveball, we couldn't develop, like the guy who was the big arm side run yeah. power sinker. So uh, yes, it's a big part of the evaluation process, um, but it's also a big part of the development process. Once we get you here and we can dig a little deeper into what makes you go. Mm. You mentioned recruiting and I want to get to that after this, but um, I wanted to talk about like how much information you allow the players to have. Um, do you give it, give them everything that you have at their disposal so they can really dive into, into it themselves? Um, or do you like to maybe hold off a little bit on that? Because guys like me, you know, we tend to overanalyze a little bit and we try to look too much into things. And 
when we both know it's really not that complicated, you know, like we don't have to look at everything. So where do you stand on like how much information you like to give your players? I tend to lean toward more than less. Uh, I would like to say like less and I filter it, but ultimately I think there's an element that you have to accept the fact that um, they can get it if they want. Uh, Mm. We have people filming our practices, you know, um, there are scouts in the stands and, um, you know, they'll pitch against somebody in the Cape League and somebody will tell them what their velocity was or their spin rates. So I don't really want to bury my head in the sand and think that um, they won't get it. I'd rather give yeah. them what they have. And Hey, this is who you are. We spent a lot of time, particularly in our first month here at Florida State, educating uh, we show them what a TrackMan document looks like mm. and, uh, you know, however many 200 data points. And I show them, hey, look, here's the 12 that we want to educate you to. The induced mm. vertical break, induced horizontal break, extension, release height, vertical approach angle. And instead of uh, breaking down individual guys, we kind of mm. broke down generalities and said, hey, what does this mean? What do these movement patterns mean? Here's okay. picture X. Yeah. And once I felt like they could comprehend that and it was palatable, we gave them their own individual information and we're kind of starting to get to the process of here's what you are. Here's what we need to work with. But also here's what's actionable. Is there a hole in your movement pattern that presents an opportunity for a cutter? Is Are you a vertical axis guy where maybe a 12-6 curveball is better than a slider? Um, hmm. the change up is, you know, it mirrors your fastball too much. Um, hmm. yeah. so long answer to a short question. I give them what we have, uh, but we filter and distill it to about 12 data points that I think are worth something and also actionable in the development process. Okay. So let's talk about the development process then, because you mentioned like, um, the biomechanics of it. You know, sometimes guys have deficiencies in the way they move. Other times it's like a data problem. Like they have bad data. Like they have maybe have a dead zone fastball, you know, something like that. Um, And then obviously there's the competing side, which you kind of throw the first two here and then the other one here, because you can kind of work on these two at the same time. So how, like, what's the, what's the development process like just for an individual guy, like on an individual level in terms of looking at like ball data or biomechanics um do you like to look at one over the other i think both are critically important i have really graduated to particularly on the biomechanics side yes there are things we can ascertain and adjust in the delivery Mm. but in a period of time particularly where we are uh we're kind of winding down the competition phase of the fall i found that if we're doing it right in the weight room and with our athletic trainer some of the biomechanical checkpoints that we're not satisfying in the pitching delivery we can address in the weight room Mm -hmm. and with constant monitoring in in the way of mobility and force production um so i like watching the biomechanics of how you use force in the pitching delivery but before we assess that i like to know how you create force in the weight room and Mm -hmm. we try to use like the the triangle of our strength coach our athletic trainer and myself to like, I ask them, Hey, build me athletes and pitchers and Mm -hmm. we can fine tune 
on the map. So biomechanically, yeah. I, I like how it looks in a a Dari capture um, pitching delivery, but I also like how it looks in the weight room because mm -hmm. we can replicate force production in there as well as we can on the mound. Um, and I think we can be a bit more aggressive with our training. As far as the data and the holes in the movement patterns, mm -hmm. that's something we're hitting now where we give them a movement plot and say, hey, your fastball is 18 inches of induced vertical break with six inches of horizontal break. And then there's a big dead zone all the way down to a curveball that's 14 inch, negative 14 inches of induced vertical break. You have big white dead zone in the middle where do we have an opportunity to add a third pitch that, you know, I hate to use it like tunnels better. Mm. Yeah. We had a guy at Notre Dame with a big 12-6 curveball and the way over the top fastball that was dead straight. And those would complement each other really well. Mm -hmm. But guys were stuck laying off that big 12-6 curveball. And his addition of a slider that came out of the same tunnel as the fastball mm. was the ticket to him getting ugly swings at his curveball. So that was just like a singular case where it was very obvious. Mm -hmm. I'd like to tell you it's always that way. But there yeah. is a lot of toil and trial and error to say, yeah, because it could look good on a TrackMan document, and we could say, yup, we figured it out. But then you face hitters and realize, well, what the hitter does tells you more than what TrackMan tells you. Like that yeah. slider that I say, boy, that looks really good on TrackMan, that gets rifled around the yard. Uh, um, I've confronted that as well, where I feel like we've yeah. We've discovered something in the bullpen and it just truly didn't translate into results on the map. Yeah. But we keep working and with every tool and resource <clears throat> at our disposal. So when that happens, because obviously it'll happen at some point, you have a guy where it's like, okay, he moves well, he's got good uh, ball <laughs> data, like the ball moves well. And it's like, it looks like it's tunneling well. I mean, from back here, it looks great. And then the hitter in the box is like, I see everything perfectly. And I can, you know, I can get a easy read on this guy. And it's not difficult for hitters. Do you go back to the ball data? Do you go back to biomechanics? Or is it more about the other side, like the competition side? Like, there's also that aspect of maybe he's not getting ahead in the counts. Maybe he's not throwing enough strikes, like just altogether. Um, like when you see that, a guy with good stuff, but it just doesn't seem to be playing. Where do, where do you like refer back to? I think the baseline of anything, and I probably should have started with this, is pitch execution. I think okay, at yeah. this level of baseball, mm -hmm. and in most past high school, you're not out thinking your opposition, you're out executing them. Um, I feel like a lot of our guys got here, and no matter where they threw their slider, it was going to produce a positive result. Yeah. Here, the slider produces a positive result if it begins in, we call it the three zone, which is the middle, or the four zone, which is away. If it mm. begins in the four and disappears into what we call the five or seven zone, um, the being consumed with pitch execution is pillar number one for us. Mm -hmm. And I think that TrackMan, while it shows you the location of pitches, I think you have to evaluate like, okay, my movement pattern is exactly what I want, but that was right in the middle of the plate. And yes, like there are guys, the Garrett Coles and the Verlanders, and they're ripping balls into the zone. And that stuff is so loud. 
you're almost just throwing your best pitch to wherever it ends up. But yeah. for us, I feel like being consumed with pitch execution is often the, that's kind of the difference where you can get the track man um, darling pitch hmm. that's not getting good results. It's usually a question of, am I leaving that in the middle of the zone? Some of the other technology that I've found to be incredibly productive is we use Synergy and I can, the Synergy product, and I can go back and look at, hey, if um, if Joe Smith is not getting positive results with his 97 mile an hour fastball, like where are these ending up? Like, let's see what guys hit against him mm-hmm. in the bottom of the zone. Let's see what hit, guys hit against him in the top of the zone. So before we use, I guess, the movement pattern, the track man as the be all end all, Mm-hmm. The concept of pitch execution has to get really hammered into uh, as our primary goal. Okay. Let's bring that into recruiting now because it's kind of difficult when most kids, I mean, in high school, even JUCO, maybe it's like they're just throwing down a one, two, or three. You know, it's it's not like, all right, we're trying to go fastball in here, curveball down away. You know, it's it's not super pinpoint with the pitch execution. At least I would think it's not the same level as Florida State, you know. So when you're recruiting guys, are you looking for guys that are just natural born competitors and you can just see that they have that sort of it factor you talked about earlier in them? Do you look at ball data and like the way they move as well? Um, or do you like prioritize one over the other? I think it's kind of any and all. Um Okay. I don't want to say it's case by case. I've, I've kind of learned that like living in the world of absolutes is not always um, the fastest path to build the staff you want. Yeah. Um, I like to, when I watch guys, I, I do get, sometimes I get sucked into like swings and misses. Like, mm. are you getting swings and misses and are they in the strike zone? It, you know, for a high school kid. Mm. And in addition to that, like, are, are you running three ball counts? A lot of times if I'm at a game and, I got to watch one game. I'm not, I don't have to like pinball around four fields at late point. If I can just mm-hmm. sit and dial in on a game, I'll usually keep the swings and misses, swings and misses in the strike zone and three ball counts. Um, I think that's a really good measure of result. Mm-hmm. I don't spend too much time thinking about is the catcher asking him to expand the zone or I feel like that's something that's kind of on us once he gets here. But for whatever he's being asked to do, by the catcher, by his coach, is he doing it at a really high level? After that, um, just to look, like, I've grown to, um, I, I like, yeah, I like long arms that are fast. I like short arms that are fast. I like deception. I know we're mm-hmm. getting into a world where, like, the uh, we're starting to see some data that the short pitcher has some advantageous properties, particularly yeah. if he's got arm strength, you know? Yeah. which um you know your generic like six three righty that doesn't mean that those guys are not incredibly valuable and aren't fun developmental tools because they are but there's like some five ten lefties who have some arm strength that create an optical anomaly mm-hmm. for hitters yeah. mm-hmm. so i don't think we build a pitching staff around the anomalies but those guys are fun to hunt the yeah the low slot guy that the ball is straight or the above way over the top guy that the ball's got run i feel like mm. if a guy has a tangible property that it doesn't look like he should have that makes him really valuable mm. um again now 
Now, these are pieces to the development of a pitching staff. You need to recruit like the horses, the big, strong, physical, repeat the delivery. Absolutely. You need those guys yeah. to eat up a large majority of your innings. But I don't think size is like the be all end all hmm. to create an elite college pitcher. Um, yeah. But I mean, yeah, we looked at it all. I mean, will we recruit a guy who can't pitch and has spin rate at 2,700 on his fastball? Probably not. You've got, I, I would hope that we could graduate toward a more complete package here. Yeah. And, and that's what we'll target. Yeah. I would think so. I think you guys can get those kinds of guys I hope for so, sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, wow. You, you brought in a, a lot of points. Um, I, I want to kind of segue into when the guys show up to campus and, you know, not every freshman is going to come on a scene and be a superstar freshman all American right away. Um, what about the guys that are struggling uh, when they first come on to onto campus and you identify some players that are struggling, how do you approach um, that situation? You try to make everything a teachable moment, but mm. you want to make sure that you are not teaching to the whole group at the expense of the same player constantly. I think yeah. finding, you know, a freshman will make mistakes that I guess as a coach, you're saying, well, shoot, I wish you didn't make that mistake, but Hey, I've got to, articulate this to everybody that way the mm. freshman that wasn't just pitching learns the lesson you unfortunately have to learn the hard way but i do think there's a balance between holding the standard articulating the shortcoming mm. and also not making a kid feel like he's being bullied or that you don't want to make a kid feel like he doesn't belong um yeah i think a really big part of our process for us like for as uh antiquated as it might feel i think it's very real like making sure the kids know you care um hmm. making sure they know that you know that player's going home and, and his day is wrecked because of the six outs that he wasn't able to get and in it because we had to roll the inning mm -hmm. sometimes it's just as simple as like hey man you're gonna be okay this is like guys who pitched in the big leagues got turned around or lost the strike zone in the fall of their freshman year. Mm -hmm. um, I would like the end of the fall to look better than the beginning did just in terms of like, show me growth. It yeah. doesn't mean you have to take your 90 mile an hour fastball and turn into 95, but just show me that you can control the running game that your one six to the plate turned into a one three uh, that mm. your fastball command got a little bit better. And I think just trying to impress upon them, like, Hey, I know it feels really bad right now, but you will be thankful in March that you just had to endure this. Mm. Um, I try not to get too high, low in the fall with the young guys, but I also want to make sure that the standard is kept even for the young guys. And yeah, I, I rely really heavily on the older guys and it's something mm. new that I'm confronting now because in 12 years, I never coached an entirely new pitching staff to me. Yeah. So after year one at Notre Dame, I felt like even though we would constantly be changing and adjusting things after year one, there was always a group of guys who knew me, knew my personality, 
knew what I was great at and maybe what I wasn't great at and could kind of, we could help each other. Mm-hmm. Now I don't have any returning player, players that we have a very long, extensive relationship where if I make a misstep, the older guy can be like, hey, I know he's hard and promise it's going to be okay. Um, mm-hmm. So I have to be really cognizant of that now, especially. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned progress too. Um, I, I think more players these days are not buying into that slower progress and like obviously you got the transfer portal and stuff like that I kind of wanted to just go right back to the high school really quick do you look for that like in your players when recruiting guys and maybe in like the timeline of uh, identifying a player as a potential recruit like how long do you look at a player and maybe measure out like okay he's developing or uh, I mean it's different for every guy but I kind of wanted to ask you on that well I think the pace with which recruiting happens now is, is so quick. We will yeah. likely target, pursue, what verbally commit a guy when he has years left of his high school experience. Mm-hmm. And the idea, and quite honestly, in the recruiting process, we, we are very candid and we say, hey, look, the player you are today, like, yes, we're recruiting him, but we're also uh, we're banking on the fact that you continue to develop. Mm-hmm. You have to love the game. You have to love the process, the development. Like you haven't, you haven't arrived, you know? Um, yeah. Joe freshman in high school, like we're not going to have a parade right now. You, we are, we have the faith in you that you're going to be an elite player for our program. Mm-hmm. And we'll show you that by saying, we want you to become part of this family. But um, I think that like measured progress is critical. We'll spend a lot of time watching our commitments just as much as we're watching guys we're still targeting because mm. we just want to see that level of progress and yeah it can be frustrating and you know i've seen the graph a million times of like the, the everybody thinks the progress graph is just like one you know steady stream upward and in reality it's kind of you know here yeah i, I, I do like guys who get confronted with a little bit of adversity uh i like guys who I sometimes watch struggle through outings or at bats and mm. watching them kind of come through the other side is really encouraging both when they're here, but also in the recruiting process. Yeah. It's that, it's that resilience that you probably don't see that often in <clears throat> young players. Right. I think about it's- like um, the kid that got to Notre Dame, the kid that got to Florida state to play baseball, you know, a lot of things have had to go your way to be put in that position. A lot yeah. of which you've earned, a lot of which has been fortuitous, some mm-hmm. of which I guess, you know, is God given. So like that first taste of adversity, whether it happens in your junior or senior high school while you're playing for a state championship, or probably more likely the first taste of adversity being the fall of your freshman year, mm-hmm. the response to that is really critical. And it can be very hard to predict what that response is going to be. Mm-hmm. Um we have kids from all socioeconomic demographics. We have kids from two-parent households, from single-parent households. Everybody's got handed like a different hand, you know, a deck, handed a different deck of cards. Yeah. Some kids have had to go through a little bit more in their teenage years than others. But that first taste of like on-field adversity here is uh, – it's a, it's a pretty loud statement to see what the response is going to be. 
Mm, it's you do your best is. to mitigate it. Like you try really oh. hard to find the guy that you're like, yup, this guy's going to get punched in the face and he's going to get right back up and be better for it. Yeah. And you really feel good about when you're right. And, and it makes you feel really bad when you're wrong. Yeah, it, you don't really see any sort of tests before you get to your the actual school in terms of can this guy's character weather the storm, you know? Because yeah, it, yeah, like you said, the adversity just doesn't hit till then, you know, and it can be and difficult. I think like I think when a kid doesn't respond the way you want, I think you're really tempted to put them uh, put a label on them. This kid sucks. Mm. All right, this 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 isn't going to work. He's not built for this. Um, but I've been doing it long enough now where those success stories are the ones that like you carry, you know, those are the mm -hmm. ones that you're like, man, the fall of that freshman, that kid's freshman year, he screwed everything up. He couldn't get anybody <laughs> out. He missed every study hall. He was just a fish out of water. And yeah. you, you, you know, you, you keep working at it and keep articulating the standard and you hope that the culture built sustains and like the, you know, the, the, uh, the rising tide kind of brings up. Mm -hmm. It's not always the case, but I think in a successful program, that's how it goes more often than not. Yeah. I mentioned the transfer portal earlier. I want to get your take on how that's been ever since it really uh, came into existence and uh, maybe, maybe like where you think it'll go in the future or where you think it should go in the future. Um, I'm not, I'm not going to give you the vanilla response. You know, I'll do my best not to. I think it's I think it's a good thing if somebody is in a situation, has surroundings that they don't feel like they fit, they're not gonna give, be given a chance to contribute. Um, something just went wrong. Maybe they just made a bad decision. People take the wrong job all the time. Unfortunately, people date the wrong people and in some cases marry the wrong people. Hmm. I understand the need for change in some circumstances yeah and we've all benefited from it um mm -hmm. i also am fearful that it could negatively impact the like the the development process where yeah. if the kid who shoot like we've got plans for you yeah i know it was a tough fall yes i know you're looking up at some guys for opportunities but stay the course you're we're going to build the program around you mm -hmm. um I think sometimes it provides an escape hatch that sometimes doesn't allow for the normal development process, the overcoming of adversity uh, mm -hmm. to, to be a, like a growth opportunity. But I'm not going to stand here and tell somebody that somebody who enters the transfer portal, well, you've got a label, like you're soft. You, you took the easy way out. Um, <laughs> I don't know yeah. everybody's specific circumstances. And I think it's a really hard thing when people, tell somebody what's best for them when they don't know what their circumstances are because everybody wants to generalize. And yeah, there are probably some cases of a baseball program needing to move on from a player. And there's some cases of a player needing to move on from a program. Uh, but the polarity of it and how public it gets, uh, it, it scares me because whether it's the right or wrong decision, it's the decision the player or the program made. And, uh, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't feel like it's right to take like a hard and fast position on an individual I know nothing about or another program that I know nothing about. Yeah. So I think it's good in a sense that people who might need a second chance mm -hmm. get it, but I'm also fearful that 
there's some really valuable lessons that some of these players would learn, adapt, overcome, and thrive that we may have less of those um, less of those cases than we otherwise would have had. Yeah, and I feel um, like a lot of players would have gone junior college and actually gotten a taste of that, you know, the adversity, the development side, yeah. get to play as opposed to just bouncing from D1 to D1. That's because as someone who went to junior college, I still think that that's the optimal route because you kind of needed to play to develop yeah. in a way. I just don't see it any other way. It's like, how can you get better without actually facing anybody in competition, right? Yeah, I mean, if you want to be a better pitcher, you've got to pitch. You know, if you want to be stronger, you've got to lift weights. If you want to be a better hitter, you got to hit. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's pretty basic. And I don't think just because it's basic, it's wrong. Um, But yeah, I feel like people have taken up, uh, it's gotten very personal. Uh, labels and things like that. Um, and and we've been the benefactor of the transfer portal and we've had guys choose to move on. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I, I, I truly just try to treat it like case by case because without knowing everybody's specific circumstance, I'm not in any position to judge guys. And, and it's no different than, you know, if a recruit calls me and tells me he thinks uh, another place is a better home for him, I'm not going to stand there on the phone and tell him why he's making such a huge mistake. You know, I <laughs> never really thought that was the best way to, uh, I guess it's probably more important now to take the high road. Cause that guy might be calling you in a year. But, yeah. Uh, no, literally. Yeah. I did the it's same gotten thing. Interesting how many voices and how loud they are when I quite honestly, I'm not, I'm not a policy maker. Uh, yeah. I'd rather it not be as fluid as it is. It can be challenging, but at the same time, uh, I, I understand that we have to keep the student athlete's best interest in mind. Yeah. And well, for a school like Florida State, too, where you guys carry such a, you know, a prestigious like tradition of, you know, the 40 win seasons and consistently going to regionals and being highly competitive and churning out professional talent. It's like, OK, maybe we do look at the transfer portal uh, to go get some guys to fill the holes that we need. But every program, I think, can do that. They can fill the holes that they need. But some programs maybe kind of go overboard with that, and they maybe lose the the development side of it, like you're talking about. Um, you personally, at least, would you rather just lean on your guys for the development, or is it like, okay, if I need transfer board guys, like I need transfer board guys, and that's just the reality of how it is right now? That's probably both. I think that our vision is to have people who believe in and want to be seminals. Part mm-hmm. of what was so attractive about this job to me, like the nostalgia, the historical significance of putting this uniform on. Mm. I want people to come here and appreciate and respect the history that putting this uniform on carries. And I think it's helpful programmatically to have those guys in your program three or four years who were seminals. They chose out of high school as Mm. freshmen, they did whatever they did. And then we developed them into the team and the culture. By the time those guys are our upperclassmen, Mm -hmm. not that the program runs itself, but being a seminal is more than just the portability of shifting guys in for one year at a time. Mm -hmm. At the same time, if you have the chance to make your roster better, 
um, you're not just you're not just recruiting the tool in the transfer portal or in the junior college ranks. You're spending time getting to know the person, learning about why they thought another opportunity was better than the one they had. So mm -hmm. I think we can vet out in the portal, hey, if you're going to come be a seminal, this isn't like you're a trade deadline acquisition. Mm -hmm. If you're going to yeah. come in, like jump in, like get in yeah. with the spear, like come do this and, and help us continue the momentum of this program of such historical significance. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So where we are right now, Yes, I think it's it's critical that we explore the portal to augment the um, some of our like our roster needs. Yeah, but I also think if we're doing it right, you know, overwhelmingly, the state of Florida and beyond, we're getting the the best guys physically, but also the ones who are invested in being a seminal for life. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, I, I would hope that a player is going to a school for the right reasons and not just trying to, you know, wear the, wear the nice uh, logo and, and kind yeah. of do it for the, the, for the wrong reasons. I mean, have you encountered any of that? I think I, it's I'm, okay. Yeah. There's a, like, there's, I think it's okay. If a guy, it's a balance, uh, it's a balance, right? I, I want, look, I want you to come here and help you realize your dream. Hmm. Be a, be a prospect. Go be a top five rounder. Go be a big leader. If you're good, we're good. Like it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. Now we're going to ask you to do things and represent the brand, the program, the history. Like you're asked to do a lot if you're going to be a, a seminal, a seminal baseball player. Mm -hmm. You have to be willing to take that challenge on and jump in with both feet and have some degree of selflessness. But at the same time, we're not unaware of your personal goals. I want you to come in here and go be a top five rounder. Um, if you do that, it probably means we're better as long as the collective is the most important we'll absolutely work every day to make sure you're taken care of mm -hmm. um how do you get players to buy into that collective effort when they do have personal goals is there a uh like a, a standard that you like to give your players um whether it's on the field off the field in the classroom how they, how they carry themselves when they're out and about um do you like to educate your players uh on kind of every aspect, especially new players, I would imagine? Well, I think the you're really reliant on the older guys or what are the norms in the program? What are the norms around campus? What is our reputation academically, mm -hmm. socially? And of course, like, what is our reputation by the product we put on the field? But I think understanding that the uniform never comes off. You need to be comfortable that when you're in the local public's grocery store, Somebody's going to recognize who our starting shortstop is. You take on that challenge. You also benefit tremendously from that yeah. um, as a visible entity here. They, God, they love you so much. Uh, it's an unbelievable fan base here. Yeah. But that, it's, it's true at Notre Dame. It's true here. Uh, it's, I think it's true everywhere that when you start to realize, like, you are a walking billboard for yourself, for our program, for our institution. It, it, it gets addressed in the first team meeting that Coach Jarrett has, and it gets addressed on the Friday of every football weekend uh, mm. where sometimes some bad decisions get made. But, yeah, I think it's important that we let every guy kind of be themselves. But, yeah, there's a standard that says, hey, if I confronted 
a Florida State baseball player in an airport in a local gym. He's going to conduct himself in a way that's representative of our program um, hmm. at the highest level. And and you guys make that like a like a practice almost like it, that's it, direct. Yeah. yeah, that's not like assuming. Yeah. yeah, that's educate. That's articulate, and, and quite honestly, that's de- demand. That's because that's not a standard. It has to do with how good your slider is. Yeah. You know, it doesn't have to do with how far you can hit a ball. Um, yeah. Something I was really proud of at Notre Dame, something that I knew from day one, having known Link, that that was going to, we weren't talking about how we field ground balls or what our two strike execution plan was when we were pitching. We talked about what it meant to be a seminal and that extended beyond to Cowser Stadium. Mm. Okay. Yeah. I mean, because it can get so cookie cutter, right? Like just saying like, all right, this is what we do. This is like how we're going to conduct things. And like, this is the only way we're going to do it. But at least on the pitching side, you're able to kind of like individualize things. And we talked about that, but like, I'm just going from the player perspective. It can be tough sometimes when a player like pushes back on like the things you guys say. Um, And and like a lot of young players too, just might, might not understand like, sort of the the weight that like that logo on their shirt carries so um i think it's important like you you mentioned to make it a direct uh communication like that they understand uh how important it is uh to represent the team in a proper way Um, i struggle with it sometimes jack like um my personality is overtly direct (laughs) yeah and I've learned like in, you know, whatever this is, 18 years as a coach, not everybody is responsive to that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've learned to be a bit more careful and a bit more measured. Now there, you know, as we develop relationships, I think there's some guys that I don't need to be as measured with. And I can just say that was terrible. It was beneath our standard, you know? Yeah. And then there are other guys that just need to understand like, Hey, here's the, here's the why, or here's the explanation. But I feel like when it comes to conduct, academic responsibility, social responsibility, the treatment of the people on our campus, whether it's uh, Florida State employees, you know, the young female students, making sure that these guys are um, beyond reproach as, as far as like what they, who they are personally and what they represent, yeah, like, I don't think there's any other way than to be like, we need to be crystal clear on this. Let's not leave anything subject to interpretation. Yeah. When we coach guys, I think that's where you really have to blend. Like, I don't worry about our guys saying you need to, or I don't worry about telling our guys you need to adapt to my personality. Uh, I feel like that is on me. Hmm. And I, I like our guys to have the freedom to kind of be who they are and my goal is to just make you the best you can be. If I have to say the same thing to five different people, five different ways, that's a hazard of the job. You know, yeah, yeah, we yeah. all want to get to the same place. So I've learned to uh, adapt and I will still be searching for mm-hmm. the best adaptation there. But that's just like, that's being a coach in 2022 and beyond. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, in, in your experience, I would assume every player who has success um, under your wing has demonstrated those 
those common sort of characteristic traits off the field, like we've just talked about. Um, are there any other commonalities or like similarities uh, in terms of where you see more successful players um, or like how they conduct themselves maybe, or the way that they approach the game? The guys that are most successful consistently, I'm not talking about demonstrating flashes of elite success, but consistent, yeah, sustained performance. Yeah. They don't compartmentalize it. Uh, they don't, they're not just excellent baseball players and excellent workers. They're, they're the most engaging people with the fans and the children. They're the, they're not always the best students, but they're not, they're, they're reaching their capability in the classroom. Um, sure. They're, they never skirt a responsibility. Um, if you played them in Madden football, they'd probably be the best. It sounds <laughs> odd, but like yeah. our performers are exactly that. Uh, like pitching, uh, playing cornhole in the outfield, like everything yeah. is a performance. Even academically, my grades or my horsepower in the classroom, like I view everything I do as a performance. And hmm. if you have that performer gene, it doesn't stay exclusive to baseball. So I think that the more I coach, the more I realize your best performers are off or your most consistent performers are often the guys who kind of do everything at a high level or at least mm. the highest level of their capability. Mm. And it's funny you mentioned consistency because we also talked about development and how in development it can be kind of a rocky road sometimes. But at least in like maybe in recruiting, maybe when you have the players too, you see even though they're struggling, there's still something that's consistent about them, you know, as they're developing as they're struggling, you're like, there is still some consistency in the way that things are going here. Yeah. I um, think um, you've got like the performance might not be as consistent. Like the box score won't read the same thing every time. Right. But there's the, the player, the the, the response to adversity or the response to success is always the same. And, mm. you know, if after you've had a particularly difficult outing, I cross paths with you in the training room after the game, I will see the same guy no matter how it went. I, mm. I can, you know, to me, consistency is not what does the box score read? Like, that's going to change. Consistency to me is, is there an appropriate measured response for success and adversity? Yeah. And again, like, yeah, that, le that, that label consistency I think sometimes indicates the fact that you're going to throw seven innings and five hits and nine strikeouts every time. And in reality, I think it's more the response to the performance that needs to remain consistent if you want to eventually chase consistent hmm. performance. Yeah, it's almost more of a, a measure of mental capacity as opposed to physical capacity. Um, do you guys, well, I mean, it sounds like you do a lot of that yourself um from like the mental approach of pitching do you guys uh dedicate any of that time um specifically toward like the mental side or is it kind of like just ingrained in the day-to-day -day, uh with each of your guys because obviously it's a little bit different for player a to player b as well i think we do both like direct uh talking about it citing examples mm. i don't think we sit down and 
take them, we don't take them through like a breathing exercise or we don't set up uh, contrived scenarios. But when something comes up and it's a coaching point and we go through yesterday's practice the mm -hmm. next day, we'll make sure we check and say, hey, this would have been a great opportunity to step off the mound, take a breath, re-engage. I see, yeah. But I think the most valuable pieces of targeting the mental game are creating routines and some of the side conversations I have, which are so, which probably if you were standing 10 feet away are so, they look so innocuous and meaningless. Mm. But those are the ones where I think you're imparting the most critical and valuable coaching points. Yeah. I think those little side pieces, and it can be really damaging too. You know, as like a Northern guy who has quite a bit of sarcasm to my like nature, mm. I know how damaging it is to walk past a guy who's in a tough mental state and be like, that was a bad slider. And like to just walk <laughs> past and in your mind, you kind of think to yourself like, all right, that was kind of funny. We'll laugh about that later. Mm. But you don't know that that guy's not going back to his dorm saying, holy cow, I'm absolutely useless. You know, I'm yeah. So the damage it can do, those little side conversations, I, I try to be keenly aware of. But I also think those are the greatest time for personalized teaching moments. And yeah, um, yeah I, I try to do that intentionally, but not to the point where it's contrived. Yeah, it's funny how players will hold on to certain things that you say and you think they don't mean anything and they mean the when world we were, to that you know, player. When we were in Omaha, um, this is Notre Dame. Um, mm -hmm. We're waiting for the game to finish before us. And the players are in their own locker room. The coaches were in our own locker room, just giving them space. And I hear like this laughter, this uproarious laughter in the players' locker room. Hmm. And I, I walk in and I kind of like pick my head in, like what's going on? And they got a whiteboard up and they're playing hangman. And I'm like, and I could okay. already tell, like, all right, somebody was talking about me. You know, you know what that look. I was yeah, like, all yeah. right, what's going on? And like, oh, we're playing Coach Rostano hangman. Like some of the things you've said oh. that like these funny comments to yeah. our pictures that they held on to. And some of which like was absolutely like uproarious laughter. Yeah. And that I was like really proud. Like, all right, I'm glad that stuck with you. And uh -huh. some of it was like, holy cow. But I said, did I tell you like, hey, that curveball is not as good as I was led to believe? Like, all right, lesson <laughs> learned, you know? <laughs> um yeah. So I appreciate that part of it, but that was like one of those moments, even after this long as a coach, mm -hmm. where you're like, yes, everything you say, like you think they're going to process the tip you gave them on throwing an effective change up. And in reality, that little wise guy side comment, that might've been the thing they took home with them. Being yeah. aware of that is really important, I think, as a coach. And it's something I work at every day and I will if I coach for 50 years. Yeah. Has that changed over time? Have you noticed that change over time that you have to be a little bit more aware of that over time? Or did you just pick up on that as the years went on? I think I, I think I noticed it more. I think when you're a young coach, mm -hmm. you get a lot more slack because you're in a space that's a little closer to the player. Um, yeah. So you're not quite as established. Your need to be staunchly professional is not as critical as a 24 25 26 year old coach mm -hmm. um and as i've gotten older and evolved and you know all we want is our guys to pay attention 
Like mm-hmm. we complain about their attention span being so limited. We complain about their face being buried in their phone and nobody talks on the phone ever, anymore. They just text each other. Like we mm-hmm. complain about that. The adults in the room complain about that. But then when they listen to us and they take away something we said, we hold them to task and say, well, why'd you listen to that? And not that. So I think as I've like evolved as a person, I don't think the kids have changed. I just think <laughs> you become more aware of it. And you, you know, you would hope that in 2022, I'm a better coach than I was in the fall of 2016. Yeah. It's something I'm, yeah, quite, quite honestly, like really had to work at. And, mm. and cause sometimes like in your brain, your point of criticism is nothing more than a little bit of breaking chops a little bit, mm. but in that kid's brain, it might feel like a very personal attack. And that's the last thing you want. Yeah. Learning to depersonalize criticism is a really important skill. I think for a coach, and it's something I've, learned over the years um yeah. like, like coach the action not the person uh or be critical of the performance not the performer i mean yeah and just to go to the player side too i mean if you're taking a level of criticism from a coach personally you're probably taking it the wrong way too no so, doubt yeah like I, I and i did it too where i would take criticism and say like oh he's just attacking like me as a person because who i am is me as a pitcher when in reality, it's just, it's like you said, it's the action. It's not who I am, you know? Um, and But it's hard, you know, you're graduating, like you're a couple of years removed from that now, you know? It's yeah. amazing to me how the all the time I spent at Notre Dame, uh, the kids who graduated two or three years after the fact, they come back for a football game and they would remind me of something I said to them <clears throat> that I never knew they were like, they were like, God, what a jerk he was being. And now at like 23 or 24 years old, they're like, man, I was so immature, you know, yeah. but as a coach, you take that really personally because mm-hmm. you want to reach, like your goal is to reach the young person in the time you have them set an example, live your life unimpeachably uh, and make them better. Yeah. And you want those relationships when they can come back and laugh about some of the stuff you butted heads about, you know? Yeah. But, but, but I think it's, it's really important that like we as coaches are always cognizant of how, things are perceived yeah i think it's important for both sides of the communication line to be conscious and make an effort um to take away sort of the emotional side of the game and the personal you know attacking you know of comments um that's why you hope the relationship um the relationship builds enough capital yeah in the recruiting process in the in the the times you showed up for each other when it had nothing mm. to do with, are you pitching today? And the times when you were giving a high five or you were, you hope that that legitimate personal investment is what allows you to be a little bit more cavalier. Yeah. But you also, of course, never want to compromise your professionalism. Hmm. So I want to go into the personal side for you. Um, I want to go all the way back to, before you even start coaching, um, I want to go to the moment you actually decided, I do want to start coaching. What was it that drew you toward the coaching role? I was kind of a limited ability player. Played at a small division one in Connecticut. The best thrill I had was going to like the NECBL and pitching and thinking to myself, I was playing against guys who were a little bit better than the league I competed at. 
So I mm -hmm. felt like I was always like struggling to find an edge. Like I knew I was going to have to outwit to out execute opposition. So when mm -hmm. my college career that came to an end, I mean, I wasn't a prospect and I was, um, I wanted to stay in sports. I did an internship at Octagon with uh, sports personalities in Stanford, Connecticut. And I thought, this is going to be cool. Maybe I'll go try and be an agent or something to stay in sports. Hmm. And when I was putting the, you know, the button down shirt and the khakis on every day, I just like, I was like, this is just not me. Like, I feel like I have, not that I have more to give to baseball, but I probably have more to take from baseball. Hmm. So I, um, I just, I, I couldn't do it. But an opportunity presented itself where I could be the pitching coach at the college I went to. And that's a hard dynamic because you're, going to be coaching guys you just played with hmm. but i was a very very serious uh player I, I was you know principled i did the right thing always i felt like making the transition from a player to coach um for guys i played with wouldn't be difficult because because of how i kind of existed uh at my college oh. so i did it for free and i worked at like offense defense football camps like making cold calls to try and solicit kids to sign up for these camps because it was the only way I could make ends meet. And I know oh, every coach boy. has that story, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, and and I did it and coaching pitchers and putting your little touches on guys, I found it so uh, invigorating. Maintaining hmm. relationships, um, like real authentic ones that lasted beyond when the uniform came off. It, it was, yeah, it was, it was, intoxicating hmm. even if it was people i already knew at the college i went to so then after that year i ended up at monmouth university which was a school in our league but they were kind of the class of our league at that time and hmm. it opened up so much of my eyes to structure and organization and hmm. i had a boss who was tough it was challenging um but it made me such a better coach and organized and from there on, I was like, all right, well, this is what I have to do. And um, <laughs> yeah. I just, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. Uh, it's funny. Like, if you look at that Monmouth baseball staff, you've got, you got me here at Florida State. You got the pitching coach at Clemson. You got the recruiting coordinator at Auburn. You got that recruiting coordinator at Pittsburgh. Um, wow. Yeah, you've got the pitching coach at St. John's. Um, the pitching coach at Duke. All these guys went through Monmouth, and I'm sure I'm missing one um, hmm. or several. It was like a, it was like a, it was like a grad level coaching class. And Coach E. Hall, who's still there to this day, it's just his ability to kind of produce coaches is is pretty interesting. But hmm. that's kind of when I so I knew I wanted to coach that first year after when I dipped my toes into it. Mm -hmm. Once I became a full time assistant and it was recruiting, it was that's when I knew this something that i'd you know i'd probably do for the rest of my life yeah and you sort of answered the next question i wanted to ask which is if you weren't coaching would you be doing like what would you be doing but i know you said uh, you can't yeah. imagine i mean i would tell you else. like <laughs> yeah fitness model no uh <laughs> yeah. um you know like i'll try not to give you like what i'd be uh I try to be in the front office or, or you know, a, a lawyer or an agent. I'll try to, you know, I like some simple, I work in a really complicated job. Like, I think there's something beautiful about like, uh, 
the guy who uh like the, the guy who picks up your trash like i like mm-hmm. the idea or i you know just hanging out in the back of my truck with a couple of guys talking about the the yankee game last night i think that's so cool or yeah. I, maybe me and a uh, guy I worked with at notre dame was my best buddy in coaching we talked about opening like a pizza place <laughs> mm. so maybe yeah. we would just just hang out at a college campus and make I'm, you know one of the things that I'm learning here in Tallahassee is it's not quite the standard of uh, pizza that I could expect in New York where I grew up. So mm-hmm. maybe they just open up a pizza place in Tallahassee. But all of those answers lead you to the fact that I have no freaking idea what I would do. I'd <laughs> hope my wife would get a really great job and I could stay home with my kids all day. That's the <laughs> yeah. answer. Uh, <laughs> well, you make a funny point, though, because it's like they're all similar in a way. Even the pitching coach thing where it's like they're all about building relationships like each of those jobs it's all centered around the relationships of it as opposed to just you know clocking in and clocking out and working for the man you know so i never considered that like maybe until this moment but it's like uh i am a bit of an introverted guy unless Mm -hmm. we really know each other um but the friends i have the people i pull the curtain back to a little bit like those are fun meaningful relationships uh mm-hmm. like again the idea of and some of the people who are gonna watch this are not gonna know what the dynamic of a new york pizza parlor is with guys walking around in the white aprons and breaking each other's chops about the yankees yeah, yeah. and the mets or um or the guys in the back of the garbage truck who are just perpetually just talking about why the islanders didn't sign Connor mcdavid or what you know um mm-hmm. I really value that part of like my existence and uh yeah yeah that that's a it's a big piece for me hmm. wow i like, I like that i don't know yeah like i'm an that. introverted guy that likes people oh um, yeah I, I, yeah i don't know i never really broke it down that deep before <laughs> no that's that's good though i i i like that there's congruency there you know, like there's a clear, I, I didn't realize you just discovered something. There's a clear like, directive, yeah. you know, you, you have a, a way about how you uh, want to carry your day and it probably shines through to your players too. You know, I'm sure they see that from a day-to-day basis. Um, I think at the end of the day, you could think like good, bad. Otherwise as a coach, I think um, I'm very easy to read in terms of, I don't have a great poker face. Uh, you know, I strive for that level of consistency that I talked about in players. But um, whatever we do or I do with our pitchers uh, will be done with an unbelievable degree of passion and um, Mm. just investment. If I I jump in, I I do a cannonball. I don't just, you know, dip my toe in the water. Yeah, I like the sound of that. I mean, if I'm a a high school recruit, you know, uh, I would I would definitely be all about that. Um, I, I have one last question. Uh, it's my favorite question. It's about the recruiting visits. I gotta know, you know, uh, if you have a most memorable recruiting visit, you know, we talked about it a little bit. It can be, you know, embarrassing for the player. It can be just a funny thing that they said. It can be something weird that they texted you, or, I mean, it can be a success story, just an unorthodox thing that happened, whatever it is, uh, anything that you have. I love the ones where, you can tell right out of the gate like that. And this is not a story, but you can tell right out of the gate that the connection is mutual, whether you're Mm -hmm. at Notre Dame or Florida State or Monmouth, you just know that you belong coaching this young man and they belong at this institution for more than just, can I make you a better player? 
but mm-hmm. I worked at Temple University for one year uh, before, unfortunately, the program was uh, dissolved. And you're, you know, as a recruit, uh, you're hunting for the unique properties of the school that you connect with. Well, one of the unique properties of Temple University is that's in Philadelphia. And mm-hmm. you've got great sports teams. It's a very passionate town. So we're recruiting this kid against a, a lot of schools that have a different story to sell than Temple does, than Philadelphia does. And I loved Philadelphia. It was I'm a big Rocky fan. You know, mm. all the streets of Philly. Where I lived right by the art museum. So when we'd bring recruits, if we really wanted them, we'd be like, all right, cheesesteaks. So we took a kid uh, who I was like, perfect. No, he's in. I can feel the connection. He's into what we're selling right now. Let's go to dinner. Let's let's decide um, which cheesesteak is better, like Pat's or Gino's, you know? So I'm in a university vehicle uh, and driving and we eat one and I'm like, he kind of eats it, but he doesn't eat it all. I'm like, all right, whatever. We'll try the next one. We get in there and uh, he eats them both and we get in the car and we go back to the student host and he pukes all over the university car, all over the car. And oh, uh, God. the poor kid, I think was like, uh, I don't know if it was lactose intolerant and just didn't want to tell me. So I'm like, now, this is a guy, this is a catcher <laughs> who's going to be a professional. Um, oh, wow. So I'm like, well, this is over. Like, should we just end the visit? I mean, it's all over. So now I drop him with the players and I'm saying, it's okay, it's okay. I'm calling the player up and saying, hey, get this kid a change of clothes, you know. So he goes to the, you know, to be with the players that night. Now I'm like hands and knees with armor all trying to clean the university car out. I'm, I'm upset. How did I not know this? And I said, well, it's over. Like, this is the most embarrassing thing in the world. We're not getting this kid. We need to target somebody else. Like, four days later, the kid commits. He turns into a top 10 rounder. Um, oh, my gosh. What? <laughs> and I never spoke to him about it again. Now, he played after I left. Because I'd left. I never actually coached him. So he played um, at Temple. And then I think he eventually transferred to another school and got drafted there. Hmm. But watching a kid puke in a university car and then eventually getting that commitment was one of the more bizarre things I've ever confronted. I yeah. mean, why aren't you Tough. telling them though? Why is he, why is he not saying anything? Was he a quiet kid? Yeah, he was. He was quiet. And you know, I, uh, I mean, I find ways to break through. If you and I are stuck in a car and you're a quiet dude, like I'll find a way to pull something out of you. I, I will. <laughs> uh, yeah. And we connected. But I think I, I think maybe he was just too. Uh, it was almost like a measure of like respect. Like, hey, coach, I, I, I you know, I don't want. I didn't want to tell you that I'm in Philadelphia and I don't eat cheese. Um, yeah. So I felt really bad and I was really embarrassed. Um, <laughs> but our players at the time were fantastic and did the right thing, I guess, and gave him a great experience. And he committed and was there. And so, unfortunately, the program dissolved him. So yeah. he went on to be a, uh, a pretty damn good prospect. That's crazy. Oh, my yeah. gosh. I mean. <laughs> I mean, and that's like, that's going deep. You know, my single year at Temple, I mean, I've got uh-huh. 12 years worth of stories at Notre Dame, most of which are reasonably uneventful. But uh, it's, yeah, that was one that kind of stuck out for me. Throwing mm. up, Because it wasn't even just like the, he threw up in the car and he eventually committed. 
it yeah. was like the um the the idea that at you know nine o'clock at night when you've dropped them off and you just want to go home you're like with the yellow dishwashing gloves yeah cleaning like, oh, out a this. car in the middle of philadelphia you know that that yeah moment of like what has my life become uh, <laughs> i can feel that in me as i tell you the story oh uh, my gosh yeah yeah but yeah notre dame I, we we uh i'm very thankful that there was not much to report on everything was smooth here and there one of the things in notre dame that was always a challenge was Notre Dame is on the Eastern time zone. Most people that get to Notre Dame fly into Chicago, which is mm -hmm. on the central time zone. Yeah. So you have to drive into the Eastern time zone. So you try and tell people like, hey, when you come here at 10 o'clock, understand when you land in Chicago, you got to change times. And I would say, you know, I'll be standing outside our, our team room, you know, with my polo shirt on, ready to, ready to receive the, the crew that I'm going to go take a tour or give a tour to mm -hmm. and be like, yup, it's 10 Oh three. They're not here. We'll see you in an hour. They forgot about the time change. <laughs> um, yep. Oh man. That happens a lot. Um, but I don't think yeah, I did I'm hoping, though. Right. I'm pretty, I think I, you were on time. Okay. I think you're on yeah. Time. Uh, there's no way my GBG guys are always on slip. time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, that's awesome though. Wow. I'm I've heard uh from other coaches, usually there's like a there's like a parent that gets too involved. It's good to hear oh, that you don't have any or, or a whole lot of that. Um, but I don't know. I, I feel like I that costs so a lot of, of players, you know, like they're yeah, I you know I try to keep in perspective, especially now that I am a parent. Um, I try to keep in perspective. Mm -hmm. You are handing us your greatest commodity. And I am proud of the product that we are going to sell to your, your young man. I don't blame you for wanting to vet us out. Mm. I like when a parent asks me questions, talk to me about who I am and my vision and what kind of dad I am. Um, talk to me about what does Florida State offer, you know, that will keep my son both developing as a baseball player, but also on the straight and narrow path to getting a great degree and having success in life beyond when baseball stops. Mm. I love those conversations because I'm proud of the product I sell. But you, if you're on this visit, what your son has done has been loud enough that you're here. So the need to sell your son any further mm -hmm. is really, um, you don't really need to do that. So yeah. I think those can kind of be frustrated or when you, when you look a kid in the eye and say, Hey, uh, Hey, Joe, come on, tell me a little bit about yourself. And you get to like, well, he's got three brothers and sisters. And, you know, uh, when dad's like, get out of here. <laughs> yeah, that, that I think. Yeah. Is, so I'm certainly not anti-parental involvement, particularly okay. in the recruiting process. Now, yeah. when you get here, um, I don't want to say like, hey, you're ours. But you know, the, the phone calls are like, hey, you know, just so you know, he's. He's kind of upset he's not starting, you know, like those. Yeah, it's like, come on. Yeah. And I mean, I, I get it. Like, you want to know that your son is in the right headspace. Mental health is like the, I think any coach will tell you, like, mental health is one of the most primary things we have to consider. When we coach a player, when he struggles a little bit, 
mm-hmm. if the social life has gotten out of control, like it's the first thing we have to think about. It's why we have the resources we have to keep a kid doing okay. So when parents have concerns about that, I think it's our obligation to have those conversations and say, hey, look, your son's going to be just fine. If you're worried about your son, I'm glad that I know that. Mm-hmm. But when that conversation transitions into, you know, he threw his change up a lot more in high school, you know, that, that um, that's kind of where it's got to stop. Yeah. I mean, and unfortunately not everyone's kid can be a superstar. Like it, no. it's just not the reality of the game. So it's a tough reality, but it's one that people have to face. Like it's just, it's part of it. It's part of life. It's part of the growth process. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, and, and for every overbearing parent, um, you know, those are the ones you often like think of, but mm-hmm. there's a, boatload of the greatest people you've ever met that just when somebody tells you i trust you with my son Mm -hmm. um i think that's a loud statement and i try to remind myself of that every day i walk out onto the field and interact with our guys Mm -hmm. somebody trusted our program and us personally with giving the best of ourselves to their son yeah and no like not every son will be a first rounder but like our role as educators at Notre Dame, at Florida State, at Monmouth, like our role as educators, I think is just as critical as it is as technical coaching. And yeah. Um, yeah, that's why I love college baseball. Um, it's 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 you're in the business of development more than just technical development. Yeah. Um, I said that was my last question, but. My last question is actually just if you have any last words for players who are interested in Florida State. I know if I'm a player right now who's listening to this, I've already gotten a pretty good taste of what it's like. And I think hearing just even that last part, just understanding um, kind of like the realities of going into college baseball, but also like how important it is to connect with the coach you know, on a different level other than can they help my fastball velo go up? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, if you, yeah, just any last words you really have uh, for players. Well, I think do your homework, like cultivate and develop real relationships. Um, hmm. But the person you are that is recruiting you, um, I think they'll reveal a bit of themselves to you. It doesn't mean because I have children and uh, you remind me of somebody or uh, I tell you that I like the Yankees. Uh, that's not a reason to choose Florida State. But I think the person or coach or program that's invested in your goals, in addition to the fact that they're invested in the three or four years you're going to spend in that program, your development as a person. Uh, I think that's really what you're hunting. And mm. it will be more obvious and sincere uh, and overt than you probably think it will be. Mm-hmm. So I think the people that you really feel like you connected to, you probably will. But when it boils, when it boils down to it, you have to understand what you're hunting and don't compromise anything you're hunting because you cultivated a really strong relationship with a coach. We are selling a product and the product is our people 
It's our program. It's our institution. And we, we want to recruit you and tell you where we think you fit and how we think you can positively impact our team, our locker room, our campus community. But um, you need to decide if that's exactly what you're hunting. I'm really proud of the product or I would not be sitting in this office and I would yeah. not have uprooted my entire life to come down here and chase national championships. Uh, but, mm -hmm. you know, be yourself and like kind of let the chips fall where they are. I think the guys yeah. who get so consumed with collecting offers, generating buzz about themselves, like you miss the boat, like let your, let your performance, like let who you authentically are, be what drives your recruiting train and uh, mm. the chips will fall where they're supposed to. They always will. That is yes. something. You and sometimes it's control. a more circuitous path than you would like, but Ooh, uh, yeah, I know that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, 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 know, I know about you know that. who you are and where you've been. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it's, you know, here, I think we do a good job of maintaining the line of delineation between coach and player. Are we going to be your best buddy? Are we going to be tailgating together? No. But like, if you have an issue that requires a human adult interaction, like then heck yeah, man, you got us in your corner from day mm -hmm. one. Uh, more than just like our Friday night starter gets no different personal attention mm. than our, the last guy on our roster. Um that that concept of seminal family is very real. And mm. I take a lot of pride in like, that's, that's the why and why I coach to mm. develop those kind of relationships. Coach Rostano, you are making a good case for yourself right here. Ah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just make sure you will edit some of the other stuff. <laughs> hey, anything you need. No, believe, believe nah, me, I, I'm doing whatever you need. Um, I'm very flattered that um you thought of me and, uh, Thank, thanks for having me, Jack. Yeah, no, thank kind of you. Thing. Like, I didn't think uh, when you visited Notre Dame, you know, whatever, six, seven years later, mm -hmm. we'd be doing this. And I'd be <laughs> here in Tallahassee. Yeah, it is funny how the world works. I mean, it's amazing. The, uh, I mean, the multiple stops I made from that point, And then for you to be on a completely different side of the country, you know, in a totally different uniform. Yeah, yeah that's, that's life, though, right? It's awesome. I'm grossly unprepared for Christmas in shorts. That oh my gosh. new for me. Yes. Yeah. Uh, oh, oh my gosh. I mean, that's my, been my entire from life. Southern California. So okay. yeah, my wife's from Irvine. So okay. she's, you know, she's doing a party. I'm kind of like uh, yeah. Clark Griswold, you know, mm -hmm. my house is going to get lit up like Tallahassee has never seen before. I love that. That's we'll awesome. See how that goes. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Um, Okay. Well, that's everything on my end. So I'll just say thank you one last time. And I, I will talk to you a little bit briefly before we say goodbye. But uh, for me, that's all I got. Um, if you wanted to say goodbye, then uh, yeah, we can wrap this up. Thanks, Jack. I, uh, I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Good luck with what you're doing. I think it's awesome. I'm sure we will see each other down the road. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. Well, that's going to be it, folks. Um, and I will see you next week.